You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, my beautiful listeners, and welcome to Skylight. This is the Skylight Books Podcast, and I'm your host, Lance Morgan. Today, I'm so excited to welcome Ruha Benjamin to read from her new book, Viral Justice, How We Grow the World We Want, followed by a conversation. Ruha Benjamin is an internationally recognized writer, speaker, and professor of African-American studies at Princeton University, where she is the founding director of the Ida B. Wells Just Data Lab. She's the award-winning author of Race After Technology, Abolitionist Tools for the New Jim Code, and the editor of Captivating Technology, among many other publications. Her work has been featured widely in the media, including the New York Times, The Washington Post, CNN, The Root, and The Guardian. Ruha, thank you so much for coming on today. I'm so excited about our conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be Uh, here. No problem. Um, It's... It's going to be a great one, guys. I'm so excited for this. But before we start our conversation, you have a reading for us today? Yes. Shall I jump in? Jump in. If this pandemic has taught us anything, it's that something almost undetectable can be deadly and that we can transmit it without even knowing. Doesn't this imply that small things, seemingly minor actions, decisions, and habits could have exponential effects in the other direction, tipping the scales toward justice, affirming life, fostering well-being, and invigorating society. This attention to seemingly small actions is what I think of as viral justice because of how this virus has taught us to respect small things. Viral justice is a way of looking or looking again, that is respecting all the ways people are working little by little, day by day, to combat unjust systems and build alternatives to the oppressive status quo. Viral justice orients us differently towards small scale, often localized actions. It invites us to witness how an idea or an action that sprouts in one place may be adopted, adapted, and diffused elsewhere. But it also counters the assumption that scaling up should always be the goal. Viral justice directs our attention to how groups seek to embody and experiment with new ways of relating. It rejects false dichotomies and either-or options when it comes to our goals and dispositions, idealistic or pragmatic experimental or enduring, spontaneous or strategic, fiery or cool, romantic or gritty, creative or cerebral, joyful or enraged. Viral justice is invested not only in our material welfare, but our spiritual well-being. It is to acknowledge that we were never meant to survive, and yet here we are, in Sadia Hartman's words. Viral justice is in an admission. I am, we are, exhausted, discouraged, grieving, and sometimes even too exhausted to grieve. It is a recognition that even the most resolute and hopeful among us worry that our efforts are futile and we need an encouragement to see another day. As a world-building rubric, viral justice is forward-looking and inventive asking, what if, while stubbornly invested in the here and now, demanding, why wait? What if we can architect a radically different existence? Why wait for these brutal death-making structures to completely collapse before we start truly living? The lens of viral justice encourages us to amplify, like a microscope would, seemingly small efforts and entice us to spread them. It is a rallying cry that scraps the bogus idea that you're just one person. As just one person, let's band together with all the other just people who are equally hungry for change. Viral justice is an invitation to listen anew 
to the white noise that is killing us softly so that we can then make something soulful together, so that we can then compose harmonies that give us life. In the midst of multiple ongoing calamities, this work of crafting more caring social relations isn't charity work, work to be done on behalf of others. Falling from a burning building, I might hit the ground first, but you won't be far behind. My well-being is intimately bound up with yours. We don't need allies. We need everyone to smell the smoke. This is what we call witnessing, the surge of sorrow, rage, and weariness that comes each time we learn anew of the never-ending cruelties that surround us. That is our hearts breaking, each piece of our insides offering up a new surface, fresh understanding, greater resolve, connecting to our outsides. Only then can we truly grasp the metal it takes for people to bear witness to this burning world, their clothes reeking with soot, their eyes itching from smoke, and yet turning one to another to plot a world where they can take off their masks and breathe easy. Again, it may be tempting to dismiss these efforts as small, fleeting, and inconsequential, as we're still taught to only appreciate that which is big and grand, official, and codified. But a microscopic virus has news for us, a micro vision of justice and generosity, love and solidarity can have exponential effects. At the end of the day, I'm a student of the late great Octavia E. Butler, writer and builder of speculative worlds. To the question, what is there to do? She once responded, I mean, there's no single answer that will solve all of our future problems. There's no magic bullets. Instead, there are thousands of answers, at least. You can be one of them if you choose to be. We can be one of them if we choose. Vectors of justice, spreaders of joy, transforming our world so that everyone has the chance to thrive. Viral justice offers a vision of change that requires each of us to individually confront how we participate in unjust systems, even when, in theory, we stand for justice. Each of us is called on to put our hand to the plow and do the work that is ours. Philadelphia-based prison abolitionist Stephanie Keene says people often ask her, how can I get involved? Her response is, do what it is you're good at. That is, if your thing is data, figure out how to contribute those skills to a cause. If you're a writer, lend your words to the struggle. If you're good at cooking, feed the people. Revolutionaries certainly need full bellies to keep up the fight. I say this to emphasize everyone isn't skilled at the same things and the work wouldn't be dynamic or sustainable if we were. We each can and should offer our particular skills to the collective pursuit of liberty and justice for all, Keene says. So my question for all of us, is how are we putting our hands to the plow and doing the work that is ours? Where is our plot? Whether digging deep or sowing seeds far and wide, plotting is about questioning the scripts you've been handed and scheming with others to do and be otherwise for the collective good of all. So again, my question for you, where is your plot? Thank you so much for that reading. It was wow. You are like the 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 content that you're reading was amazing, but you are also just such a captivating speaker. So that was such a treat. Um, I feel like I got a little extra since I got to see you as well. <laughs> um, so yeah, sorry, listeners, that's just for me. Um, no, thank you, thank you for that reading. Thank you for coming on. I just. I when when I first heard of your book, um, I just the the past you know two and a half years. Wow, it's been two and a half years, and even you know before that there were the um, events before that, but most but specifically the past two and a half years, you know it's been a lot of large scale things have been happening. You know, just so many things across the world that you know is found uniting you know we found we found some um idea of like 
unification throughout the world that we're in it together. But, you know, felt overwhelming at times. It felt like, how can I, a single person, you know, affect large scale change and do my part to, you know, change the world. And, you know, a lot of conversations I've had with people, friends, um, family have been to, you know, perspective of like, okay, what can you do to, what can you specifically do to change, especially around you right now? Like the, the, as much as like, you know, large scale change is effective, like small, small scale change is. So when I saw your book, I was like, wow, this is so, this is, I mean, I'm still learning. <laughs> I'm still learning how to, you know, you're right. It's, it's, it's still, it's, it's a process. Exactly. Yeah. And it's you even know. about, you know, questioning even that distinction between yeah. small and large, because any large change has relied on things that at the time may have seemed small. And so part mm-hmm. of it is to even um, break apart that dichotomy or that distinction and to look for how actions, smaller actions add up, accumulate, build on each other, how how things, ideas and 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 changes in in our values and practices can become contagious and spread. And so part of it is really to to recalibrate and to look at how things add up and for us to realize that we're connected. What I do and choose to do, the decisions I make, you know, if someone's, let's say, listening to this and they're sitting watching their kid playing at a playground, you know, Mm -hmm. around LA or they're on their commute sitting in traffic, like these, on one hand, there's two different experiences, but what that parent choose to teach that child could have, you know, that, that child is going to go into the world and may one day encounter that person that's sitting in traffic listening and exactly. the values that they hold, the decisions that they make, these are intersecting processes. And so part of it is to really kind of like look through the matrix and see the <laughs> connections that are sometimes right. elude us. Mm-hmm. And I mean, yeah, really, so it's really sometimes about looking through that matrix. Like it's, it's hard. It's not easy. The, the, what is it? The red pill, blue pill. It's exactly. not easy to take. Which one was the pill? The red pill, right? It's. I can never remember. Can I'm never like, remember where's the purple pill? Where's, where's the, the other? <laughs> right? Like, where's the, I want the rainbow, the full rainbow <laughs> exactly. pills. Which one? <laughs> I don't want just two choices. And I exactly. really, we really live in a world where we're often presented two choices mm-hmm. that are evil and eviler or you know worse and worser you know and part of what we have to insist upon are mm-hmm. are alternatives to those those two bad choices one of which you know i'm thinking obviously in the political spectrum but in many other contexts where um we're forced into these 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 false choices and so we have to insist upon other stories other mm-hmm. other pathways to the future that are not predicated on just lessening the harm we need to choose um, options that are more caring and just exactly and like it feels you know it it can and you talked about it um a little bit just now about like you know you specifically what can I do what can I I'm a uh like for example I mean I there's I know specifically because I work in the community a lot as a bookseller like things I could do but like for example like if I said I'm just a bookseller all I do is sell books to people I'm not really contributing to that like you know it's you say that like no there are things you specifically can do I can't think of I that's the farthest from the truth to think (laughs) that people who do who are because what you are is your Mm -hmm. this is about this is about the stories that we consume and the stories that we tell one really powerful idea I heard recently from a cultural historian whose name eludes me I might look it up is that we're we're in between stories as a species and humanity. Like we have these mm-hmm. old stories that are predicated on white supremacy, racial capitalism, you mm-hmm. know, patriarchy, settler colonial, like all of these huge dominant narratives that have re- are really the source of our suffering and mm-hmm. our um of both the, our ecology and our bodies and our relationships. And so right now we need to desperately craft new narratives and stories that are predicated on our interdependence, on solidarity Mm -hmm. and love. And so Mm -hmm. 
booksellers and people who work at like you are the purveyors of stories and narrative and so it really does matter you know um the the kinds of things that we are taking in and that we feel empowered then to craft new stories as a result because we have to turn a corner and and you know a hundred percent and like you know i've been a bookseller for years i've you know i've i've personally you know figure that out but yeah there's there probably are booksellers listening who are like wow that that is true and you know maybe sending them on a new course and even with you know my um the my the the fact that i'm able to do this podcast you know able to like show people (laughs) this and show people you know new avenues on thinking and how in books that can you know support their thinking but even like you know i um I have a good friend who's a teacher and they do, they know that they do great work, but like, you know, sometimes even as a teacher, you feel like you're climbing up a hill that you're just rolling that, uh, what is it? Rolling the boulder up that hill that keeps sliding back down. And, you know, it just feels like a little bit defeatist sometimes. Absolutely. Most of the teachers in my life are either on their way out or have Mm -hmm. had to take leaves of absences or just experience extreme burnout. I think about, you mm-hmm. know, among the, among the groups that have been on the front lines of this pandemic, yeah. the level of fatigue and disillusionment um, that, you know, our educators have faced is really unmatched. And so yeah. I, I don't want, I really don't want the takeaway from the book to simply be, you know, a, about, yeah, it's about individuals feeling their power to contribute to something mm. larger but we really also i'm encouraging us to work in collectives like what does it mm-hmm. mean to join with others who are experiencing what we're experiencing the mm-hmm. same levels of suffering and inequality and work together to try to change that environment that is the source of that and so in the in the you know in terms of teachers that means you know working with other teachers and healthcare workers similarly and so this is about not just about individual action, but linking arms and joining forces and looking around us and thinking, who can we work with to try to um, undo, uproot the things that are that are killing us, but also, and crucially, to seed the, the things that are life-affirming, the things mm-hmm. about our work and about our goals, um, as whether it's profession or neighborhood or what have you. So it's this two-pan process, right? We want to mm-hmm. pull up and we want to seed at the same time. Um, mm-hmm. Because too often when we just focus on what we don't want, we, we focus on the things that we don't want. We aren't carving out the time to actually create and to water and to nurture alternatives. Then we're just going to still be in a kind of barren wasteland if we don't yeah. really prioritize that. Yeah. And like, I mean, yeah, this has been a big burnout, um, burnout season years. Uh, I feel like burnout season works, you know, it's, it, it's, it's like we're in a sort of uh shortage of like so many essential people because you know it's it's hard it's a hard yeah. it's been a hard times doctors yeah. teachers um yeah that like, well, that phrase burnout season is so perfect because so much of what i'm describing in the book is the way that our environments get under our skin and mm-hmm. and and produce premature death i talk about my my dad's own premature death I talk mm-hmm. about the 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 level of policing that my family has experienced, my brother's experience, and so these are about environments that um, are are really unlivable and hostile to to many of us. And so the question is, like, there's a public health concept that I um, draw upon, developed by someone named Arlene Geronimus, and she talks about this idea of weathering. So weathering, when we look at a a building that's been weathered, we know what that means. Like over time, the elements have sort of worn it down. And the thing about it is our bodies and our spirits can also be weathered, are often Mm -hmm. weathered based on the environmental pressures, the stressors and oppressors that then beat up, beat beat upon us, get under our skin, cause higher blood pressure, cause chronic Mm -hmm. illnesses well before the pandemic that then made some people Mm -hmm. more susceptible to to um, coronavirus. And so when we are thinking about what needs to change, a lot of people will say, well, the individual, you need to put on a mask. Yes, you need to do individually, you need to do certain things, but we also have to transform this hostile weather and we have to tackle yeah. the, the root of the problem. And so this burnout mm-hmm. season that you described 
whether it's in the context of a single school or a mm -hmm. hospital or mm -hmm. a neighborhood, we have to look around us and be able to identify what's causing the harm so that then yeah. we can resist it and then figure out what we want instead. Yeah. And I mean, one thing that like, I think has come from it is the also the idea of like, you know, look like small scale and like locally we're we have to protect like those people who are also doing those roles. like it's not just the teachers who responsibility to like take care of students per se it's our responsibility to take care of these teachers who are doing this too say that and, again say right that again. <laughs> just like it's our it's our responsibility we're they're, they're teaching our children who's protecting them who like same with doctors like they are they're saving lives they're doing the work they're doing all of, they're doing this and they're not getting protected like who it's not and this is my own personal take on it but it's not just like going outside and applauding them it's how are they are they are they do they feel mentally healthy do they yes do are they are they struggling in their own personal life as well how can we support them like it's yes I feel like, like we got to move beyond the platitudes and exactly. you know we we had all the rhetoric in the early days of essential workers and what mm -hmm. I describe in the book is yeah essential they're essential to gaslight they're essential mm -hmm. to not pay they're essential exactly. to ignore you know so it's like mm -hmm. we can uplift people in words but if we materially don't put our our policies where our platitudes are then it's all lip service and that's really what we saw and that's part of the the what's behind the burnout and so when we think about what needs to change like you know one of the things I come to towards the end of the book is looking at how our city budgets like these things that mm -hmm. seem super duper boring like an excel sheet that has like line items and right. you know it's like data and it's but it's in that that one of the groups that I, I profile from Seattle the Seattle, Seattle solidarity budget they call our city budgets moral documents because they literally tell us show us what we value so you, right. you can have politicians all day saying, oh, yay, the teachers, oh, the healthcare workers. But if you look at the city budget and you see the police are getting more than anyone else, that is what you value. And that yeah. is what you think is the solution. And so that's when I say small scale. Say if you look at the that budget, those tiny things you can barely see, but mm -hmm. that holds the insight into what our society, what our cities and our communities are really investing in. And so if we want to see change, you can save all your rhetoric, save all your feel good, you know, slogans. I want you to take that line item right there from police mm -hmm. and put it back into the things yeah. that are really, really produce safety and well-being and, and mm -hmm. relationships and foster connection. And so that's what when I'm talking about small scale, I'm saying, let's look at the things that seem boring, but holds a yeah. lot of weight. Right. Exactly. And there you will see it in that in the in our city budgets. Yeah. And I mean, <laughs> what more can you say about that? Because like, yeah, it's the it's the idea of redistribution of like wealth. Redistrib we need to redistribute it. Why do our teachers not have enough money to, you know, take care of their classrooms and their students? And I mean, like, a, a, it's slowly happening. But why are children still paying for lunch at schools when I just had this conversation yesterday with a friend? Why are students paying for lunches at school when they are legally obligated to be in a classroom? Why? It doesn't make sense to me. They, why, are, yeah. why are teachers spending money out of their own pockets? Why are doctors, um, why are, let me go past doctors. Mm -hmm. do that. Why are essential workers only, um, only giving only given like grace when it comes to uh certain roles when it does include people who work at grocery stores who are yes. supplying their community with food people who work at bookstores who exactly know, say like, it again say it again we want books you know how many books people were buying during the pandemic but like were you thinking about your local bookseller who was there in person giving handing you your book during a global pandemic right yes and uh, i will like, say about school lunches i think i just heard or read that california is the first state yes. to implement free meals to all public school students mm -hmm. starting this year which is an important development that needs yes. to spread that needs to become <laughs> contagious it does um, because that it as you said this is mm -hmm. a place that young people are required to be 
and mm-hmm. and it makes no sense that you know that we would not be just making that freely available um and i would just add one caveat is that we need to also look at the healthfulness of that food because when we look worldwide at what young people eat at school um yeah. most you most us states um i would call it food like substances that we're giving <laughs> and not not and, uh, uh, brain brain nurturing food so let's mm, look at the content of those school lunches too but it's a great development i would say it is and i think california uh, hopefully will be a good example for the rest of the country there and that's another another small thing about that it's like they're kids these are children they're they're children who like should not have to think about school lunches on a daily they should be thinking about oh i let me finish this homework before class if there are students like me they're like okay i have 10 minutes let me finish this homework real quick but uh no that's what but that's it they should be thinking about that not like hungry like ask like wondering like oh can i stay awake through my next class because i'm so hungry and tired and stuff like that we need there's there I, it, that one just gets that one specifically gets to me because you know children children and, and one babies. of the things exactly and one of the things we you know i think it's important just to highlight and i'm co-signing everything that you're saying is that there's mm-hmm. a direct relationship between our our inability to provide whether it's you know uh you know clean buildings good food mm-hmm. a, a low student teacher ratio you know re, uh you know transformative justice programs in schools mm-hmm. rather than this you know school to prison pipeline making it real education and not just schooling mm-hmm. there's a relationship between that and the concentration of wealth in the hands of a few so in california where the tech industry is, you know, booming, there's a direct relationship between the housing crisis, the crisis in public education, because these same companies do not pay their fair share in taxes, billions of dollars of wealth is hoarded. Mm. And, you know, and so we have to understand that it's not because we don't have the resources, it's Mm. about the priorities that are set going back to those, those budgets. And so, we have the ability to ensure everyone has what they need to eat, housing, healthcare, relationship, mm-hmm. relationship safety, all of that. And so it's a matter of us as a, 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 a population, a public, mm-hmm. a citizens um, demanding that this is where the wealth goes. This is where yeah. the resources go. And mm-hmm. we have to work together to raise our uh, collective voices in that direction. And, and so again, it's a choice that we're making that mm-hmm. some kids are hungry or that they go home and, yeah. you know, uh, uh, and don't have what they need um, to be able to spend their time thinking and dreaming and, and playing, you know, playing yeah. is a, is a right to, you know, that everyone should right. have safe environments to play. And so exactly. again, let's make different choices collectively to insist mm-hmm. on, on what people need. And that's what a, a can't build on that statement it's so real uh, but um one thing i want to talk about in the book which i feel like it's very just amazing that you do is you get very personal you go into very personal topics especially including your family and you were talking a little about earlier about how like you know your father's um premature um premature death and mm-hmm. your brother's um experience with the criminal justice system mm-hmm. and your own you know experience as a young mother too which like Mm -hmm. I mean (laughs) the fact that you um graduated uh you graduated Spellman a week after you know having it was a week after right having your um first child I mean wow I (laughs) and so I think my my decision there really was you know thinking about the fact that I'm in inviting readers to look at their own lives and what Mm -hmm. choices they make, what has affected them for better or worse, um, Mm -hmm. how they want to, you know, put their own hand to the plow to go back to that. And so if I'm asking the reader to do that, I got to do that. I got to meet you halfway Mm -hmm. on the page. And so I'm not going to have this sort of, um, you know, pseudo objective distance approach to social analysis that is often Mm -hmm. the case with a lot of academic writing. And that has its place in certain contexts 
But here where I am inviting or asking the reader to dig deep um, mm -hmm. and to think about how, how your own personal commitments connect to your personal experiences, uh, uh, shape your public commitments. I have to do the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's the reason why I, and I have the worst memory. So it took a lot of effort to go back and dig through my childhood and my, mm -hmm. you know, talk to my family and just yeah. figure out, okay, what happened? Um, mm -hmm. and, and so hopefully readers, it's, as they're engaging those stories, it's, you realize that this is, this is a window into my life, but it's also an invitation for you to look at your own, you know, the things that have shaped you and that the people that you have shaped and, and think about, um, you know, how to really allow our connection as people, um, to, to let our public um, ideals sort of reflect that. And so um, I hope people enjoy that aspect of the book, but know that there's lots of, uh, there's also some strident social commentary and yeah. analysis mixed into those stories as well. And I mean, I it's because, you know, yeah, there's, a, the world affects, you know, every aspects of our relationships in life. Like the outer world is very important. Um, I, the other day was talking about um, the book Transcendent Kingdom. I don't have you read it. It's no, I so, haven't read it yet. It's yeah. so good. I think you would really? love it. I, oh, I thank recommend. you for thank you. I um, take that. But it's another book about you know family and how that how the mm. out, outside forces does um, affect your relationships with mm -hmm. it. And there's a lot of like stuff because I because like specifically when you love like it's love is an important part of all of yes. this it's love I mean Bell Hooks talks about it yes. all about love and her and many other of her books her love trilogy yes um right here. she she I mean I oh I see it I see it over there um, on your amazing bookshelf um no I mean it's about love of community and what what better way to learn about that love community than from your own family, right? Absolutely. And to recognize that love isn't only a feeling, it's a force. Like it mm -hmm. makes things happen in the world. We can think about, I think understanding as a force means that we can direct it and and we can try to build it and give it momentum and so that it mm -hmm. operates in our lives, in our institutions. And so it's not just something we trot out on Valentine's Day or mm -hmm. special occasions or Hallmark cards. It's something right. that actually is a power in the world. And, mm -hmm. and too often love is rationed. Like we, we, yeah. we, we hoard love and we direct it only at people who we imagine to be like ourselves or our inner mm -hmm. group. And in that way, we, we, it's a disservice because it's this powerful force in the world, but oftentimes it's directed at a kind of chauvinism, uh, yeah. a, a way that we only love. <laughs> you know, um, people who somehow um, meet certain kind of metrics or we yeah. think or have earned our love. And so I think what we learn from Bell Hooks, what we learn from James Baldwin, what we mm -hmm. learn from many others is mm -hmm. that at the heart of a lot of our social ills, it's not only hatred, but it's a distorted form of love or what yeah. Fanon says, a perversion of love. And mm -hmm. so I think we have to really be honest about how love is operating in our own lives and our own psyches and, and, and think about what it means to have a much more expansive, radical form of love um, mm -hmm. that can also, that can be this kind of force in, in the world. And I mean, yeah, love is, love, love is, can be that force in the world. And it is, I mean, do you think your book, you know, would you say at its center it is about love? You know, absolutely. it is about that kind of love. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, and part of loving others is also loving ourselves. You know, for mm -hmm. me, a part of writing it was a form of therapy and self and healing and dealing with these multiple crises, and thinking about you know how do I want to spend my time and how and how do I want to write in a way that is accessible and reaches out and invites people in, and so even in the writing itself that you know is about storytelling and is about um you know connecting heart to heart that is an act of love rather than mm -hmm. create more distance it's saying i want to bring you in i want to bring you into my life i want to tell you things that i really haven't shared publicly mm -hmm. um not as a kind of expose but it's to, to show you what i've learned from it to show you you know what 
how it connects perhaps to what you've gone through so it can be a mm-hmm. form of of connection and 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 so that we can build something together and i mean that's that's what you know a lot of people and i mean as a black person i hope i wonder if you um connect to this too which i'm assuming yeah family you know family is more than just like blood in a lot of ways it's it's because of you know kinship yeah it's kinship it's it's um that person you call cousin who might not share any blood with you but your cousins absolutely your aunt who took care of you after school because she lived down the street and that's it that's it's community it's it's love it's love in that way it's not um it's because we you know we needed to build that to support ourselves and we had to we We had to to. yeah Yeah. and so this idea of cultivating kinship beyond Mm. blood i think is actually an example for the world because that's what we need now if we only are we only loyal to respect and love people who we're related to by blood? That's a very mm-hmm. limited notion yeah. of connection, right? And so this right. idea of, of this expansive notion of kinship and mm-hmm. accountability to our kin. So it's not just yeah. naming someone cousin or auntie or, or nana. Yeah. It's okay, what then, how then am I you know, responsible for you and you responsible for me and let those threads, actually, those threads of relationships actually mm-hmm. means something in how we treat one another. And so yeah. I think that, again, that's a model well beyond our, our communities to think about what that looks like on a planetary level and not just connection to other human beings, mm-hmm. but how are we, how, what responsibility do we have for our environment, to the water, to, yeah. you know, to, to, to the trees, um, mm-hmm. to now we're, we're right now, as we're talking, there's multiple hurricanes and storms, yeah. you know, affecting. And so, it's really this expansive notion of our ecological interdependence that we have mm-hmm. to take seriously. Again, not right. as buzzword, not as like a slogan, but how does that translate into our our actions? Yeah, and it's yeah, no, it's it's yeah. I, lo- I love that you talked about you know the environment as well because environment is incredibly important to it. As look at like in Michigan, like there the water is a resource that they're you know having to fight tooth and nail for and there are people who are doing it that's absolutely and like as much as they need more help and listeners if there's any way you can you know help go out and support there's a lot of mutual aid um places you can donate money to if you can't physically be there if you um you can you know help organize online call people but like there's but like you know, it's, it's, these are ways it's, it's inspiring to see like, you know, those, those, even though they don't have enough help yet, I'm hoping they get more soon. Those look at how this, even this, this like effort that's being put out together right now is affecting it. It is effective. Absolutely. and I feel like that's something a lot of people don't realize. It is effective. They kind of, yeah. it, there's a pessimism there, right? Yeah, we have to do two things at once. We have to honor and invest in these mutual aid relationships mm-hmm. and networks, as you're calling out. I'm thinking also of Jackson, Mississippi and my mm-hmm. and my friends and colleagues there who are undergoing a very similar um, yes. um, travesty in terms of mm-hmm. um, the water crisis and so many other places um, that don't necessarily get hit the headlines but at the same time we have to demand investment in these public infrastructures so that we don't have to constantly rally these mutual aid networks and so i think we can do both at the same time we have you know it's it's incredible how um you know resourceful and um solidaristic our communities Mm -hmm. are but at the same time it's like there's no reason why our friends in Jackson should be should be experiencing this yeah. assault because of this ongoing divestment from public infrastructures. And so for those listening, I just want to re- say it's not an either or it's not we either do this or that, but we need to, you know, understand that at the local community level, we have to build up these robust relations, but we also mm-hmm. have to demand our our, um, you know, that our public policies and, and infrastructures um, are, don't constantly 
have you know resources taken you know taken from it and taken from our communities in particular um, to, that weaken these infrastructures and cause these travesties. Yeah. And and we can't wait for you know the next big Black Lives Matter movement or the next like catastrophe like the hurricane happening right now all the hurricanes sorry these storms happening right now or earthquakes or uh fires or all the, we can't wait for these things to push us there because all that's going to happen is it's going to be a higher hill to climb yes and when we could just you know be there for each other right now so yes. yeah it's it's uh and you know it's just so amazing that like especially your book is you know in its in its own way this idea this you putting you know your what you can into the world yeah Yeah. and that's I mean that's amazing and like you know writers do have that power writers do have their power and uh if you're a writer listening and that responsibility as well like there's a responsibility as a writer if you have an audience why not you know yes tell I feel like a lot of people want to stay apolitical or they want to be like oh I don't want to you know get in the middle I don't like politics all this stuff it's like you what you're not no one's truly apolitical you have to be you have to do something and I'm not talking about like Democrats yeah, uh, yeah. Republicans conservatives liberal blah, blah. I'm talking about like acting in the world acting yes (laughs) get our hands dirty and there are examples in the book of people literally getting their hands dirty in terms of you know urban gardening in Mm -hmm. LA looking at the Mm -hmm. you know Ron Finley and edible gardens so it's like everywhere we look if we if we look we will Mm -hmm. find people who are not just waiting for top-down change but are feeding the kind of world that they want right in their own backyards, front yards, side yards, all of it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and if we feel discouraged, that's part of it. I mean, we can't be, you know, that's part of the process that we feel disillusioned, skeptical, cynical, all of that, but we have to push through that because, you know, as Baldwin says, to be pessimistic, it it presumes that human life is an academic matter and it's not Mm -hmm. that people are suffering and don't have the, you know, the choice, but to, press on and so let's let's all you know kind of contribute to that and push through our own disillusionment to try to um work in our organizations and our communities to to um, whether it's in education or health or you know abolition what have you keep on keeping on and i yeah keep on keeping on like it's for real like not even in a, just a, me saying this to say it like keep on be this is all we have at the end of the day, this is all we have. <laughs> this is, and it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. Don't let, yeah, don't let don't let um, it be minimized. What we can do mm-hmm. um, in solidarity and working yeah. together. So part of it is owning our power, our collective power, um, to to make make the kind of changes that we need. And this is for for anyone listening who's like still like frustrated and like and this in what I'm about to say should not be the reason, the sole reason you do any of this, but if it convinces you to like, you know, even seek it out or try it a little bit, go for it. But like, you will feel good. It will make you feel good. It will make you feel both mentally and physically and spiritually better. <laughs> like mm. it, you go out and do something that like you think can make any increment of a change. Mm. And it's like I feel like people think of it, it's like that's selfish to only think mm-hmm. about yourself and I'm like mm-hmm. but like think about yourself it's what you said yes. love your, you have to love yourself too and Absolutely. loving yourself includes your own moral being as well yes. your own like ethics you feel loving if you are feel proud of the work you've done that's loving yourself yes. that's self-care in a way yeah and like so like if it's if like and if you want an example, go outside and give someone who, you know, give someone a smile, give them a compliment. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's, that's, that's, you might think that's so small in comparison to what we've been talking about, but like, mm-hmm. it's, it's a little taste of it. It's a little hit, a little hit of the <laughs> there good we go. stuff, you know, there we go. There a little we go. hit of the good stuff, you know, give <laughs> someone a bottle of water who you think needs mm-hmm. a bottle of water, mm-hmm. like, you know, just do some, something and you'll realize, yeah, it feels good. It feels good to think that I am contributing to this world. And again, should not be the only reason you're doing this. There's a lot more reasons to do it, but 
it will feel it will make you feel better um Ruha, we have to wrap up yeah we have to wrap up in a second but the last thing i want to ask you is about you while writing this book how did mm-hmm. how did like your emotions mm-hmm. feel during it your frustrations your own yeah. like sense of self and reflection yeah. i'm guessing how did that yeah. you know feel for you yeah i think you know in some ways you know you read a book and then you get to the acknowledgement section and then you think about like who what helped you do that you know who, <laughs> exactly. who, who would help to do that and as exactly. i was writing it i realized wow this whole book is really one long acknowledgement of all of the people and experiences, even challenges and heartaches that have made me, that have allowed me to, you know, do my work and, and, mm-hmm. and you know, have a family and be in community with people. And so part of it was just an overwhelming feeling of gratitude when I was writing it because I got to kind of inventory so many experiences that I often don't aren't at the forefront of my mind because I moved every five or six years as a, you mm. know both first growing up and then for work so the part of my survival mechanism has always been to kind of delete what was before so I don't what like I don't miss it as much and so mm. part of the book was like remembering all of the people and everything that has really poured into me and so the book in many ways is an offering back not just to those people but to anyone mm. who needs it who needs to be filled and so gratitude was the overwhelming part, but there are also sections of the book and the re- and a reader will recognize which sections they are in which I'm very angry at mm-hmm. the kinds of things that have been happening, both in terms of both the, the casual death that has happened in the course of the pandemic in which some communities and people and demographics have been literally left to die. And also the much more, um, you know, uh, uh, spe- the spectacles, the assaults, the police violence that, you know, is part of our news feed. So it's the slow death and the swift death that has really mm-hmm. is always sort of fueling my rage. But mm-hmm. writing the book is my way of metabolizing those emotions and thinking yeah. about what do I do with them? How do I process them and make them into something so that they don't fester inside of me? So for anyone mm-hmm. who's listening, who's in that, that, you know, that pit of rage and anger, which I totally relate to, part of what I'm inviting you to do is to think about how, where you can channel it, where you can direct it, how you can metabolize it so it doesn't just sit in your body and literally make your liver, you know, turn your liver on fire, but where can you direct it? So in other words, both gratitude and anger have really um, characterized the experience of writing the book and have fueled me in different ways. And, you know, that's, that's amazing to hear because, you know, sometimes you hear that it doesn't always go that way. It doesn't always work that way. And you talk about in your book as well, like anger is, anger is, is, it's like um, fire. It's as useful and helpful as it is destructive. Yes. You know, we need That's it. That's a wonderful, we, yes. Wonderful. It's as useful. I think I'm stealing it from um, a television yeah. show I like. Yeah, but, it, make, little bit, but it, it makes sense. It makes listen, sense. Yes. It's a, it, it can warm team. us, but it can burn shit down too. It can burn so shit like, down. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. and sometimes to, things um, need to get burned down. And so part yeah. of it is thinking about which way to direct it. So exactly. And, yeah. you know, yeah things get burned down things get things get destroyed and it's not and it's sad and it's it hurts and it's also necessary and hopefully it's and like you might not see that at the moment you not might not see that in front of you might never see it but someone around you might see it and that's really just like you got to hang on to that sometimes right absolutely yeah yeah and the I'm trying to. Oh, I, I know a TV show. It's an animated kids show. Avatar: <laughs> Last Airbender. Great show. Yes, great I show. Stick, I watched right? it with the boys. <laughs> it's in in the way that they talked. Yes. Honestly, another good show about community, about like yes. you know, being outside and, of yourself and the different elements. We need them exactly. all. Exactly, <laughs> we need them all. They're as again as destructive as they are helpful. Exactly. Like you gotta, how to channel yeah. them, how to direct them, how to direct mm-hmm. balance. You know, balance. Yes, yes. yes. Av- you heard that, <laughs> listeners. Go watch Avatar. If you haven't great show fantastic show um all right Ruha this has been fantastic it's been so fun thank you for inviting me Lance thank you for coming on this has been you know 
a fantastic episode and I just I feel I feel like our conversation was just so much so natural yes, and flowed so exactly, well. Exactly. We could have gone on for hours. And, and we will, yeah, and we, we will, will at some man. point. <laughs> we will, we will, we will. Um, all right, listeners, that was um this is Ruha Benjamin, author of Viral Justice, which you can buy at your local bookstore right now, including Skylight Books. It's been we've it's we've been featuring it and the way people have been flocking to it. It's uh, so great to see. But um, Ruha, do you have anything, last things you'd like to say to, you know, the independent bookstore community and your own independent bookstore, local independent bookstore? Yes, I love my local Labyrinth books. Um, mm-hmm. They are my partner in justice, not partner love in it. crime. And <laughs> just if you're listening to this, definitely, definitely support your independent bookstores, whether you go into the brick and mortar or mm-hmm. you go to bookshop um, and get the books from um, your local vendors because Mm -hmm. they're not just booksellers but they're part of really strengthening the fabric of our communities and so Mm -hmm. i'm just respecting and appreciating what they do and you know it is so important to again which we were talking about booksellers a part of this a part of the a part of the movement and also a part we should support your local bookstore and your local bookseller uh-huh. support your local bookseller give give them a high five i don't know say yes. thank you or or you know bring them bring them donuts one day yes I, listen <laughs> i need to eat too bring your local books bring yeah. your local bookseller donuts is what i'm saying we, yes. the the way that we will be so happy and yes. cry afterwards um no but yeah thank you again Ruha. this is fantastic a pleasure and to my listeners thank you so much um if it's your first time listening, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, thank you. We appreciate all of you. Um, and I hope you listen again soon. Have a great and beautiful rest of your day, guys. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.